Resiliency Within, with host Elaine miller Karras is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com. Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I am indeed Elaine miller Karras, and I would like to welcome my guests today, psychotherapists Jamie Gamboa and Brian Steffen. Today, they will share with us a way to help all of us who suffer. They've created what is called the Suicide Ideation Toolbox. We're going to call it SIT from here on out, which contains accessible skills for helping professionals and all people who experience deep suffering. These skills are intended to increase resilience by fostering connection with ourselves, our bodies, our communities, our values at times when we feel most disconnected. And if any of our listeners are suffering or contemplating ending your life and need help, you can call 988 in the United States for 24-7 assistance. Again, just 988, three numbers if you need help. I want to talk a little bit about suicide before we talk about their um, wonderful ideas in terms of helping to reduce suffering. But suicide can be difficult to talk about, and yet it is imperative that we as a world community create ways to reduce suffering and reduce suicide attempts and deaths. And there's some heart-wrenching statistics, but before I even, sometimes I always say, well, should I even give statistics? Because when, when we hear the statistic, we're not talking about the person, and that person is a brother, a mother, a father, an uncle, an aunt, um, a community member, a friend, a beloved friend. And so remember when we talk about suicide, I do it for the intention of just showing the the immense number of people who are suffering and why it is to me a public health emergency that we have shows like this today and people like um, Jamie and Brian, who are going to give us some ideas to help reduce the suffering. So just in 2021 alone, there were over 48,000 Americans who died by suicide. It is the second leading cause of death in the world and the third leading cause of death in the U.S. for individuals aged 15 to 24. So we have to reach out to our young ones and help them you connect in the way that you're going to hear that there are ways to reach out to help someone who may be contemplating this. But I think the other element that's important for us to know that the highest suicide rates in the US, in the US are among white males, followed by American, Indian, Alaska natives, and black males. So, and also that for every one suicide death, there are 25 that attempt. So that's over a million people. And that's why um, this is important that we all pay attention to this. So my guest today expressed that nearly everyone will experience thoughts of suicide at some point in their lives. The problem isn't that we sometimes feel this way, they say. The problem is that we suffer in silence when we most need to connect with non-judgmental and caring others. I think it's important that you know that they really realize, and I want to really emphasize this, there's a stigma that they're that really 
exists around the world, um, talking about suicide and our mental health and well-being. And this can can hinder um, our natural ability, as they say, to make those connections that are so important. So I want you all to know that they have created, I'm going to say this more than once, created Spotlight on Suicide, S. OS, and I love the acronym SOS because we can remember it, and making it their mission to shine a light on suicide by providing education about how to coexist with suffering. And we're going to talk about this. What does it mean? Do I have to coexist with suffering? Is there a way to do that so that I can also cultivate well-being at the same time? We're going to ask that question to them in just a second, but I have to tell you a little bit more about them. First of all, I want you all to know you can go to the Voice America Resiliency Within net page and look at their full biographies, which is quite extensive, but I'm going to tell you a little bit about each one of them now. So Jamie Gamboa has her PsyD. So it's Dr. Jamie Gamboa, and I know you worked hard for that. So I'm going to say Dr. Jamie Gamboa is a multiculturally informed, sex-positive, LGBTQIA-affirming, kink-affirming, and non-monogamy polygamy. Oh, I don't know if I can say the word. Polygamory. Affirm, you can have to correct me. Thank you. Affirming clinician at Framework Psychological Associates. In other words, she is very open affirming to all. That's what I would say from what I just read. She specializes in working with neurodiversity, trauma, creative individuals. In addition to providing individuals and couples therapy, she's a lead clinician for Frameworks Group Program. She runs several therapy groups. And previously, um, she worked for five years as a supervisor and crisis counselor at Dee Dee Hirsch's Suicide Hotline. And I want you all to talk a little bit about that because weren't they pioneers? Dee Dee Hirsch was pioneers in saying we need help for people that are thinking about this. Now, Brian, Brian, you have quite a <laughs> quite a career, but I am so happy to hear that you're not only a psychotherapist, but like me, you're a social worker and you specialize in grief, suicide, anxiety, crisis response. And you have worked with Dee Dee Hirsch Suicide Prevention Center um, Dr. David Plotnick and Associates and Los Angeles Mayor's Office Crisis Response Team, Suicide Response Team. And also, at maybe another date, but if you want to mention something about it today, you previously served as an intelligence officer with the U.S. Department of Defense and an intelligence analyst with the FBI, LAPD, Joint Regional Intelligence Center, Regional Terrorism Threat Assessment Center in LA. I hope you had an acronym because that would have been a mouthful to say every single time. But I, I think you can hear from how I've described both of my guests. They have so much experience and really being on the front lines of helping those and suffer, those who suffer in very many different ways. So as we get started today, I'm going to ask each of them first, what is on your mind right at this moment? And Jamie, if, is it okay if I call you Jamie during the show? Please call me Jamie. Okay. Yeah, um, what would you like to start with? And I'll go secondly with Bri- with Brian. Um, oh, anything that's on my mind. It's a very yeah. Anything's on your mind right now as we're getting started. Yeah. Um, just that I'm really excited. Um, as you may know, like I've been a really big fan of Trim and Crim for a long time. And honestly, you're my hero. So it's a pleasure being able to talk. Oh, to my you goodness. Now, I didn't know she was going to say that, but thank you very much. It's very kind of you, Jamie, for saying that. And for those of you that don't, don't know, the TRIM is the trauma resiliency model. CRIM is the community resiliency model. And those are both two models of intervention that I'm one of the key developers of. So thank you. And Brian, now over to you. Well, I'm also very excited to be here. The, what was just popped into my head is the um, that 
expression, two shortens the road. Two, two people, two shortens the road. And uh, I'm so glad that Jamie and I, that we're friends. And I've learned so much from you, Jamie, at Dee Dee Hirsch at the Crisis Hotline. And when, um, and I also am so grateful that I thought that um, suicide and grief and deep suffering and other things could only be uh, addressed with the neck up, so to speak, talking, talking. And I could never understand why why I kept talking, but I didn't feel better. And mm. it's so great to, great to have found out through Jamie about Elaine, your work, and that it's the mind and the body. It's the, it's the past and the future. It's, and we don't have to do it alone. And so I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. Well, and I just want to underscore, we don't have to do it alone. And any of you that are out there that are feeling that desperation of aloneness, that I think that we need to take heed of Brian's words and to remember the 988, the reaching out. And maybe there's other people in your life that you haven't thought of that you could reach out to. And we're going to say this right from the get-go is you might want to reach out to them because there may be help when that you didn't expect was there. But let me ask you first, and that's I'm going to I'm going to start again with with Jamie. You know, how has your lived experience inspired you to create this work that you're clearly passionate about? Mm-hmm. As you know, I, I have a um, close friend of mine who died by suicide a couple of years back, um, and she was uh, living with suicidal thoughts persistently for seven years before her death. Um, and I, I still remember the first time she attempted and called me on the phone and I was so panicked in that moment. I didn't know what to do because um, there was so much pressure to say the right thing or do the right thing. And this was before I um, entered my master's program for psychology. Um, my undergraduate degree in Japanese and poetry did not prepare me. Um, my experience as a human did not prepare me. I had no idea what to do. Um, and so a big inspiration in originally um, volunteering for Dee Hirsch um, was to have the opportunity to get to talk to people who were suffering the way that my friend was. And I wanted to like initially see if I could learn what I could do to support her. And yeah. a lot of what I've learned, a lot of what I've developed um, was for that purpose. So it was for one person. Well, you know, you say something that I think is very important that I've heard from from many people in my career, and that is, oh, I don't want to bring up suicide because that's going to put the thought in their mind. Mm -hmm. So it's better that I not say anything at all, Mm -hmm. which we've learned is really not the right thing to do. And so I hope that we can talk a little bit more about that and get get you both to weigh in on that as we go forth today. So if you're worried about someone out there and you think if I'm that maybe they've said the words, but you haven't followed through, Mm -hmm. reach out to them because it may be the one thing that helps to save their life today. Mm -hmm. It's doing just that. So Brian, the same question to you, how has your lived experience inspired you to create the work you're passionate about? Yeah. Well, similarly uh, it's, it's, it's all lived experience for me. As you mentioned before, I, I, this is not my first career. This is, uh, I had experience in the past working in the public sector, working for the defense department, um, and it was a huge shock to me when I lost a friend of mine to suicide, and she was the last person that I expected who would die by suicide. Um, she was and will always remain a great friend, brilliant, funny, and helpful, and accomplished, and 
And when she died, it was a huge, not only a shock, but it also really scared me because I thought that if it could happen to her, well, then it, it could happen to me. It could happen to anyone. And I really felt this frailty or fragility. Like now I'm, again, if it could happen to her, it could happen to me. So I, I buried that down deep for a number of months, which is, you know, that's how I've learned to survive. But then eventually I just couldn't deny that anymore because like grief, I wanted to also talk about her mm-hmm. and talk about my feelings. So I started volunteering at the Dee Hurst Suicide Prevention Center Crisis Hotline and their amazing program and their training. And I found not only an answer to some of the questions I had, like, why did she die? Why? Why? And I came to find out that it was, yes, there was suffering, but it's the suffering in silence. It's the silence that, that, that kills. And now I've learned that it's not dangerous to talk about suicide. It's not dangerous to talk about grief. It's not dangerous to talk about anxiety. It's not dangerous to talk about deep suffering. And so I've also been able to heal my own wounds. And uh, so lived experience is, is the beginning and the middle and the end it's it lived experiences is so important to me. Yeah. Well, and I think there's one other thing, what thing that you said that I think is again, important to underscore. And that is that you've healed your own wounds. And I think oftentimes when people are suffering, they may think there is no way out from the, from the degree of their suffering and their grief. And so I, again, want to express to anyone out there that there is a way. And I think that you said it in the beginning, Brian is about the mind and body connection. We sometimes can't think our way out of it, but when we bring the body into it, it can give another portal of information to us and also another portal of healing. And and uh, and so to remember that if anyone is feeling that degree of suffering, that there are people that are well-trained psychotherapists that bring in both the mind and body and helping people to heal these this deep suffering that you talk about. So this brings me to another question, and that is, you know, why do people think about suicide? I mean, you you talked about your friend, Brian, that was just the last person you expected. And I think I've heard that from many people. Sometimes it's the star athlete, the star student. I mean, there's so many different people, of course, that go into that bucket of of who may end their life. But but tell us a little bit more. And so, Jamie, do you want to start? Why do people think about you have uh, pressed the button for one of my favorite spiels. Okay. So what which is-, is that your brain is trying to help because um, our brains are really wired to help us survive and also solve problems, make meaning. And so when you're suffering, your brain identifies the suffering as this is a problem. How do we fix it? Um, what's difficult though, is when you're in crisis brain, also your frontal lobe here, which is responsible for Um, complex thinking and long-term planning goes offline. And that can make um, it really difficult to think through things. The world can become very constricted and narrows down to a single point, which is really useful if you're running away from a bear, um, but less useful if you have a more complex problem, a relational problem, a systemic problem. Um, So you're in deep suffering and your brain identifies it as a problem. And one of the things that our brain does to help is generates thoughts for us. It is brainstorming, basically. Like, this sucks, what do I do? Um, And as you know about brainstorming, you're just kind of throwing stuff out there. The idea of it is that you're generating as many ideas as possible 
with the understanding that a lot of them are not necessarily going to be good ideas or feasible ideas, what have you. And so similarly, your brain is generating thoughts. What do I do? How do I move through this? I feel stuck. I can't live like this. And so eventually, all human beings at some point in their life, usually more than once, will have their brain generate a thought like, well, maybe if I just you know turn the steering wheel a little bit to the left and I went into um, this guardrail here, you know, if I didn't wake up, maybe if I were dead, then I wouldn't have to deal with all of this. And sometimes these thoughts can scare people um, or trigger the onset of shame for people because then they have thoughts, they have attempts to make meaning of what was originally attempt to make meaning and solve problems. Namely, why am I having this thought? What does this thought mean about me as a person? Um, does it mean I'm selfish? Does it mean I'm a bad mother? Um, how could I think about ending my life when I have a child? Um, and similarly, you can get really stuck in this one thought, and then it shuts down the brainstorming process. And what your brain is really trying to do is uh, help you figure out, what do I do next? Um, and it doesn't mean you want to or intend to act on the thoughts. Although, of course, some people um, who are experiencing deep suffering, there may be desire and there may be intention, but your brain's trying to help you. So, Jamie, do you think what happens is that when you get into that thought pattern mm-hmm. and the prefrontal cortex that you know helps us problem solve isn't working in a, let's say, resiliency-focused way, then mm-hmm. that negative thought about, you know, I want to end my life, I want to end my life, becomes like a loop tape that is hard to jump yes. off that. that uh, because of that constriction effect. Um, if yeah. you read Schneidman, who is um, a well-known suicidologist, who wrote a great book, The Suicidal Mind, he observed that people who were in a suicidal crisis experienced the world in a very constricted way, um, where they weren't really able to see all the things that were around them. They couldn't ask themselves, as you so often say, Elaine, what else is there? Like, yeah. yes, this really sucks right now. And also this cup of tea tastes really good. And my sister cares about me. And um, this cat is lovely. All of those things kind of vanish. And all that is in front of you is the crisis. So my next question, I think, Brian, I'd love for you to weigh in as well. This is a very important part of our discussion. Is there any additional thoughts that you have about what, what, why do people think about suicide? Yeah, well, I, and I love I love listening to you, you, Jamie, talk about this because it's nice to hear someone say the truth about thoughts. You know, thoughts aren't facts. It's so nice to hear an, a doctor, Dr. Jamie, saying that thoughts are, it's just our mind trying to figure it all out. Maybe thoughts is, thoughts is just the word that we've all agreed on. Maybe it would be better to call them guesses. And our brain is coming up with all these guesses all the time. And for some of us, some guesses, some thoughts can be really scary. And when Jamie and I were on the crisis hotline, we would hear people talk all the time. And they would say, I had this. And they would whisper to us, I had, I had this thought <gasps> about suicide. What's wrong with me? You know? And so, so, I, so again, it's so nice to hear someone say out loud what I think I wanted, I've wanted to hear for a long time, which is um, it's okay to think about suicide. But now this is the piece that I just wanted to add to what Jamie said is there's, there's many reasons why we can't 
we should not talk about suicide and it's so stigmatized. And for some people who are interested, you may find it interesting or helpful to look at the critical suicide studies movement. So we also have a critical movement here where we go back and we're looking at, yeah, why is it that we all, some, so many of us blame ourselves for the thoughts we have? And in the mid 19th century, uh, the medical model was applied to suicide. And unfortunately, a lot of people were uh, learned, believed that suicide was a sickness inside them and an illness inside them. And that was the language used by the medical professionals and the you know, mental health providers at the time. And now we know, just like Jamie said, that deep suffering and feeling like, ugh, I just don't know if I want to do this anymore. Suicide's not about being dead. Nobody wants to be dead. And by the way, of course, we're not talking about physician-assisted suicide. That's a different conversation. But suicide in the, in the uh, deep suffering and what we're talking about, it's not about wanting to be dead. It's that the pain of being alive right now is so great, coupled with the fact that we're not supposed to be talking about it again. This is, this is something inside me. It's my fault I feel this way, and I need to figure it out on my own. So it's the suffering and then the suffering in silence. And so it, it's the disconnection that really contributes to so much of the, of the suicidality that we see, disconnection. Well, and I think when I you know, look at the statistics for people from the ages of 15 to 25, and knowing that that developmental age as well, um, that it's so fast moving, and also sometimes without the insight and the full development of the brain as well, which happens about 25 years of age, that there can be Im Im impulsivity of doing something, something like ending your life that really is the result of a temporary problem without the insight that this will pass. Do you, either of you have a comment about what I just said? It just, just came to me as, as you were talking, Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and the, the thing we see with suicidality, it's like a big wave washes over you sometimes. And when you're underwater, it feels like you can't breathe and it feels like it's going to be like that forever. And that's that constriction effect. And again, that is very helpful and really helps us survive in situations where there's some kind of uh, imminent physical threat to us when we need to outrun something or fight something. Um, all of us, all of the resources we have available go towards surviving that imminent threat. Um, and again, very helpful in cases where you're being physically attacked. But if the danger, the cause of deep suffering is you know, a bit more nuanced or complex or relational, and the thing about relational danger is that it is danger to us because we know that we survive um, because of connection. As a species, we're really wired to connect with one another. And we know that if we're alone, we're much less likely to survive, you know, especially when you're very young. If you aren't connected to your, your parents and caregivers and community, your chances of survival are very low. And when you're an adolescent, as you're saying, Elaine, your, your frontal lobe here is not fully developed. So that makes you more vulnerable to impulsivity in that moment when the wave is washing over you. You haven't had the lived experience to develop uh, skills for how to surf that urge to do something to end it in the moment. Um, and in addition, there's so much pressure to uh, be accepted socially. 
And so it really feels to young developing minds like their life is in danger if, for example, they're being bullied or they feel like they're not being accepted or they're being rejected. Well, and I cannot, you know, of course, have this discussion without at least touching upon social media. And I mean, and how would you say, I'll turn to Brian, that social media is impacting this age group regarding that feeling of belonging and connection that's so important to us if you see an image of all your friends, you know, at the beach and you weren't invited, for example. And then you see it, the image over and over again of not being invited. So it's not just the one time of not being invited that may have happened to me when I was a kid, but I didn't have to see it as an image played over and over on my Instagram feed or all the different ways that we have to keep in contact with each other. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, there was a time where, you know, we'd come to school on Monday and only then did we find out what everyone did on Saturday night and dealing with that regret and shame, et cetera. But now we know in real time that everybody's at the party and they never gave me the address. Right. And I was driving around the neighborhood looking for the, the sound of the music. Mm-hmm. So, so I, yeah, I definitely want to acknowledge that piece about another example of disconnection and the reminders and the um, proliferation of, of well, all, all of it. And, you know, I'm comparing my insides to your outsides, right? And I, everybody else looks great. And I guess that means they're feeling great. And I feel not great. I also want to share the other side too, which is that social media is also tremendously connective and wonderfully supportive. The TikTok community and the mental health issues and the behavioral health and those just fancy words for just the human stuff. TikTok and others are great places where people are talking about human things like humans going to therapy and humans dealing with their first job and humans dealing with acne. And like for some of us, we didn't have that supportiveness. And so it's, you know, sometimes people come down and they say social media is bad. Well, it's mixed. Sure. It could be, but there's also so many people who are finding lifelines. They're connected, whether it be Reddit, Facebook, whether it be WhatsApp group, text chains. And so thank goodness that um, social media, like, 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 like anything, it's what we do with it. And there's a lot of people who are working real hard to make sure that social media is a place where we can find connection and have emotional safety, which is just as important as physical safety, emotional safety. And I think, I think that's a, an important aspect to underscore as well. But I think it might be interesting when we come back from the break, if you can talk about, you know, can we create algorithms for our children, for our family members that we're worried about so that those algorithms get, you know, pop up rather than the algorithms that have to do with, let's say, despair, but also have to do with well-being, which I know that the three of us are very invested in well-being. But, you know, you're reminding me in, about something that happened to me when I moved to Claremont many years ago. I didn't know anybody and I'm quite a extroverted person and I was really lonely. And my husband and I, the very first weekend, we were walking by a house and they were having a party and they had like balloons. And, and I looked at him and go, we're not invited to any party. But I felt very young when I said that to him. And just serendipitously, a, a few months later, I was at a woman's retreat and it happened that the woman who lived in that house, I met, I said, do you live in that one house on, on Yale? And she says, oh yeah, that's where I live. And I said, and I told her the story and she said to me, and she was from the South. She said, Elaine, if I knew you were out there, I would have just picked you up and hugged you and brought you inside and <laughs> welcomed you to the community. And 
as simple as that was, I started crying and I, yeah. and that just felt like everything that ever happened to me as a child or as a teen, all of a sudden dissipated. And I was like 40 years old when that happened. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I just want y'all to know that if anybody's out there thinking that they weren't invited, you're always invited to my party. So I just want you all to know, <laughs> Elaine at resiliencywithin.com, you can send me an email and I will give you a virtual hug. Aww. So anyway, I just had to say that. It just there was something about the way you said that. So we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, oh my goodness, I, I'm going to have to have a series of shows with you too. I think we've gotten through three of our questions so far. So anyway, <laughs> we still have a whole other, because I really want to talk about what does it mean to prevent suicide when we get back from the break and really do a deep dive into that about what you've learned for for anybody that's suffering out there or are trying to help a, a friend or family member who they know is maybe in, in, in troubled waters. We will be back in a few moments with Dr. Jamie Gambo. I'm going to keep saying that. And social worker. <laughs> Yay, Brian. <laughs> um, in, in a, when we come back in just a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. The Trauma Resource Institute is a nonprofit organization cultivating trauma-informed and resiliency-focused individuals and communities worldwide. Our mission is to take people from despair to hope. We believe in a world where every child and adult has the capacity to recover from highly stressful and traumatic experiences. Check out iChill, our free app that helps you learn the wellness skills of the community and trauma resiliency models. Go to TraumaResourceInstitute.com for more information. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, The Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. Well, welcome back. I have Jamie Gamboa and Brian Steffen with me today, and we were talking about their new work, their new nonprofit that they're starting to help those who may be suffering. And they've created some wonderful ideas about how to help us if we have thoughts. Uh, 
about wanting to end our life. And what we've been learning in the first half of the show is many of us, that kind of passes through our minds every now and then. And so I want to, what we want to kind of swerve to right now is what does it mean to prevent suicide? And this time I'll start with Brian. All right, Brian. And then I'll go, and then I'll go to Jamie. Okay. We're, we're playing, you know, musical chairs here. Yeah. What does it mean to prevent? Um, well, I, I did want to add just a little a little caveat here. Every time I say the word prevention, and thank goodness that we are in a world now where people can say that word in a full-throated way, prevention, right? Um, because we've lost so many people and so many people, like you said in your introduction, Elaine, so many friends and family and colleagues have been impacted. The average number of people impacted by a, a single suicide is 125 people 125 people are impacted like a like a grenade if you'll allow the metaphor there a grenade going off and that shrapnel landing and in others and then we carry i carry that shrapnel with me in my life so the prevention of suicide deaths is so important and that you know sometimes in life when people um uh, lose their job, they think about suicide. Uh, are you thinking about suicide? You know, sometimes when people get dumped right before going off to college from their first significant other, they think about suicide. You know, are you thinking about, you know, sometimes when people have a, have, get a terrible tattoo and they thought they, you know, I thought it was going to say Brian with an I, but he put a Y on there. And sometimes when people have a, have a tattoo that didn't turn out the way that you wanted it to, they, they think about suicide. It happens all the time. Are you thinking about suicide? So there are ways to, if, if suicide is in part about the suffering in silence, then if we can address the silence part, the disconnection part, the stigma part, the, the, the let me just figure it out on my own part, then we will have done a great service to preventing suicide deaths. I also wanted to say that that word prevention sometimes I also think about Smokey the Bear. Only you can prevent forest fires. And is suicide like a forest fire? That's something that we should prevent. Well, you know, forest fires happen naturally. Forest fires are a naturally occurring thing. Uh, I'm not going to use, I'm not going to say any more about that because I don't know a lot about forests or fires, but I do know that they happen, whether it be by lightning or other things. And when we are experiencing deep suffering, Humans, when we got a C, and our, my dad said, if I got anything less than a B, then I was going to have my cell phone taken away. That's really hard. My whole life is on my cell phone. And so, as Jamie said before, thoughts of suicide are a completely understandable, completely human reaction. It's, an, it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation. I... Th I I didn't expect, I didn't ask for this tattoo mistake. I didn't ask to be dumped. I didn't ask for my grandma to die. And so I wanted to say that there's also other words like treating, like talking, like sharing, like communities where we can actually say me too. And there's so much power in me too. So I'm glad you said prevention because prevention, and we don't have to just stop at prevention. There's also, what can we learn? Oh my gosh, what about, what can we learn from our own deep suffering? Jamie and I have a, 
uh, a series that we hold on Saturday mornings get inside LA here in Los Angeles over Zoom. And we call this um, sitting with suicide. It's a mindfulness, wellness, and deep suffering space. And just like there's post-traumatic growth, there can also be post-suicidality growth. There can be post-deep suffering growth. So prevention and treating and talking and growing from. And I never thought it would be possible to grow from the experience of suicidality, but I have. I've had thoughts of suicide. And now that I've shared it with people, I actually know myself better and I'm not as scared by my own interior life. So yeah, that's my take on prevention. I'm just wondering, does there something else happen that if once you share it with someone else, you find out going, oh, I've had those thoughts too. And then you're not alone and you figure, oh, well, if you've had that and I've had that, yeah, we've had abnormal things happen, but it's not an uncommon thing to have that thought pass your way. And there was one other thing before I really want Jamie to weigh in on this question too. But I also thought about, you know, when you're talking about that tattoo, for example, I can see that some family members, what are you so upset about a tattoo? So, oh my gosh, just go back and get them to take the I out and put the Y back in. And we're using that, right? But it also can be, oh, you broke up, but that's all, it's okay. You're young, you're going to have other loves in the future. But it's not listening to the suffering that's mm-hmm. happening. It's, it's platitudes right. and it's not listening to the suffering. And I think that's mm-hmm. an important part of what I'm getting from the two of you about that paying attention and connection. Mm-hmm. So with that, Jamie, over to you about this important question. What Excellent. does it mean to prevent suicide? Um, I always tell people who I'm training, both you know, training people on the lines and also training um, therapists who aren't licensed yet, is if you're fixing, you're not listening. Um, because generally, if you are listening to somebody who is struggling, you're going to notice the impulse to try and fix it because our brains, again, um, are wired to help us solve problems. Uh, our own problems and other people's problems. And if you're listening to someone you care about, say, I'm in so much pain that I want to die, um, you're going to notice the urge to try and fix whatever the problem is. They won't feel that way anymore. Um, And you're trying to help. um, But if you're trying to fix, then you're not really listening. So for example, I love metaphors. Again, my um, undergraduate degree was in poetry. Uh, It's like if somebody's in a burning building and they're saying, I have to jump out of the window. I don't want to, but I have to because I'm about to be engulfed in flames. Um, And if you're fixing, you might say, well, why don't you just go down the stairs? You don't have to jump out of the window. Just go down the stairs. Um, But if you weren't listening, then you wouldn't know, actually, I can't go down the stairs because the door is hot and I think the stairs are on fire too. So if you're trying to fix without listening, you know, one, the person feels like they're not being heard. And two, you don't really know what the situation is. So whatever solution you come up with is not going to be very good. And it's probably going to be invalidating and make the person feel more alone, even though you're trying to help. Because if you're like, well, it's so easy. Why don't you just blank? Um, They feel more shame. They may feel like, oh, you know, this person doesn't get it. It shuts them down. And then they're still thinking all the same things and feeling the same things, but they're feeling it alone. Um, and I'm thinking back to a lot of experiences I've had on the lines where, you know, we would have like a 20, 30 minute phone call with somebody. And at the end of it, they're, they have a different brain than they had at the beginning. So at the beginning, they may say things like, 
Um, I have nothing. I have no one. There's no way out of this. Nobody cares. Um, And I don't try and talk them out of it. You sit and you listen um, and you explore. You're curious. Um, You don't try and take away suicide away from them because maybe it's like a transitional object and they need to hold on to it for now to feel like at least something is in their control. And at the end of the call, I was often very surprised by when people had a different brain, how much different their world as communicated to me sounded to be. Um, So someone starts, I have nothing, I have no one. 30 minutes later, okay, I'm going to hang up the phone now. I need to go talk to my sister. Like, wait, sister, where was sister 30 minutes ago? So sister was always there. You know, that cup of tea was always there and the walk was always there and all of the coping skills and buffers were always there. But when you're in that constriction effect and you're in crisis brain, you don't have access to those things. Oh, it's such an important thing. And I talk about this in my work about a woman I met in the Philippines mm-hmm. who they just had a horrible destruction of their community. And she was you know, very despondent. And she said to one of our workers, thank you for reminding me what I already knew but had forgotten. Mm-hmm. And I think that's you know, so true about that contracted vista that if you can't see to the right or the left because you literally have blockers on that no one else can see but you know that are there, then it it can doesn't matter that you have the sister there, but no one's helped link you to her that she can actually give you that lifeline that you didn't know you have, which is why crisis lines are so incredibly important because it gives that that lifeline when a person may not have known that they even had those kinds of supports for them. Oh, anyway, I just love the work that you're doing. So, you know, I want us to talk a little bit about the 988 line and you two have been involved in that whole movement, bringing that in. And I'm wondering which one of you would like to go first to talk about that, the 988. Yeah, sure. Well, I, yeah, I'm very glad to be talking about it. I I worked a shift last night um, and got, we got lots of calls from 988. Some people are calling to find out what, what is this? Is it free? Is it confidential? Can I call more than once? Yes, yes, yes. Um, and thank goodness too, because Elaine, in your intro, you were talking about those those three digits, and it is so. Uh, when when I'm in crisis brain, or when I'm feeling overwhelmed, or when I'm flustered, or when something unexpected has happened, it's really hard to remember one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. Or it's really hard to remember 1-800-SUICIDE. Wait, how do I spell suicide on the phone? S, what number is the U? It's hard. And so now we have, um, okay, 988, 988. And when times are hard, and like, Jamie, again, what Jamie was saying, um, whew, everything's getting so fast and overwhelming, and I don't know what to do, and I'm, oh, wait, I remember. Whether it be maybe some people are listening and hearing this for the first time, 988. And so remember what we're saying. And there are people like Jamie who are answering the phone. And and me too. <laughs> but I just think about, you know, Jamie, Jamie, you and I would work together. And I, I'm so grateful for the experience in person because I could hear, you know, sometimes I would hear what Jamie was saying. I didn't know what the caller was saying, but I can only hear what Jamie was saying. And the kindness and the love, the really the, the 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 safe, the welcoming. Thank you for calling. I would hear Jamie say things like, "It totally makes sense that you're feeling this way." Mm. And I've wanted somebody to say that to me for so long in different times. And I would hear sometimes Jamie and our other counselors say things like, 
how come? And again, it's just that the curiosity, and I didn't know what they were talking about, but I knew that Jamie cared. And to be with people who are curious, and earlier I talked about the two shortens the road. Mm-hmm. I know that I'm looking for people who are curious about my life, who don't treat me like a problem to be fixed, a problem to be solved. And at the hotline, we don't treat people like problems to be solved because you're not broken. That's that's one of the big questions we get. People call and say, why am I thinking about suicide? Why am I thinking about suicide? And thank goodness, we can say, and anybody who's listening to this right now, if anybody ever asks you that, you can tell them this, because you are a human being. That's why. And when times are hard, and we feel stuck, and we feel alone, and overwhelmed, and it's scary, and we all, and we all still have that eight-year-old, that 10-year-old, that six-year-old still inside us, and thoughts of suicide, it totally makes sense. I believe you. Something else I used to hear Jamie say to people, I believe you. And that's the kind of medicine that actually really helps. People don't need a cure. People need a witness. And, and that's what 988 does. And then also, sometimes people do want some collaborative brainstorming. Hey, can you help me find a good group therapy in Sacramento? For sure. Hey, can you help me find a good um, intimate partner violence DV hotline? Absolutely. But first, first is the emotional safety, the connection. Um, you're not broken. You're not a bad human. And I want to hear more. So in a nutshell, that's, that's 988. Well, I mean, goodness, both of you. I mean, I would think I would tell either of you anything. And I think you would just embrace me no matter what it was. So I'm feeling that already from both of you. But I have another question about that, that um, is connected to what you just said, um, Brian. I know in the work that we've done at the Trauma Resource Institute, it's been very helpful for people. We say that it's not... Um, pathology or mental weakness, it's biology. And when Jamie said earlier, know that neuroscientifically we are designed to have these thoughts when we're trying to solve a problem, that helps me to hear, oh, you mean I'm designed, like you said, you're human, but to have that extra little bit of information about neuroscience, have you? I'll ask Jamie, have you found that to be helpful when you're talking to people or not? Yeah, I found that to be helpful when I'm talking to people Um, and like for myself personally as a human. But I remember I had a client just recently who was having what we call passive thoughts of suicide. So thoughts like, um, maybe it would be easier if I didn't wake up. I wish I wasn't here. Um, Maybe I don't want to be alive anymore. And there was so much shame around that, around like, what does it mean about me as a human? Why am I having these thoughts? What's wrong with me? Um, So then she became the problem instead of the problem being the problem. And then she felt like she couldn't tell anyone because they wouldn't understand. And shame says, what's wrong with me? I'm unlovable. If people knew I uh, did this, said this, felt this, they wouldn't love me anymore. And that shuts down the ability to connect when you need it most. And for her, it was really helpful just knowing everyone has these thoughts. This is just your brain doing what brains do. There's nothing wrong with you. Yeah. Um, was really powerful for her. Well, and I'm also, as you're, as you're talking, I was thinking about certain families. Mm-hmm. And we know that certain families did not, do not have the education that you are giving to us right now. So mm-hmm. family members may say something that creates a further environment that's not safe. 
So I think if anyone, you know, says, well, I've talked to my family, they don't get it. They can contact the 988 line. And can people text the line or only phone call the line? Can they do both? Yeah, that's a great question. And yes, thank you for talking about family and other circles or systems that we're in where we feel like people aren't seeing us for how we really are, or people would like us to make some adjustments before they can see us. So people call or text or instant message. We have multiple ways that people can engage with the crisis hotline, um, all of which can be found at 988.org or suicidepreventionlifeline.org, but basically Googling 988 and you'll get right there. Now, I'm seeing our time is quickly slipping away and I don't Uh know. Us to leave without talking about the suicidal ideation toolbox. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how can people find out more information about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, The toolbox is not publicly available yet, although we're working on it. Um, The idea is to give people the education, the tools they need to be able to not hit the panic button when they're experiencing thoughts of suicide or somebody else is experiencing thoughts of suicide. Um, to instead be able to sit with and be curious about the suicidal thoughts. Um, And in doing so, give yourself or somebody else permission to have them and ride them out. So the idea is they're going to be tools to help people be connected to their bodies, um, to other people, to their values. And a big part of that is being able to move through to urge surf when you're in crisis brain And then also longer term in the toolbox are going to be skills for how to make meaning. So what Brian and I have really found in current interventions for suicidality is it's really focused on assessment. Like, what do we do when you're in a suicidal crisis right now? Do you need to go to the hospital or not? How do we stabilize you? But there's really not a lot out there for what do we do when people have more persisting thoughts of suicide? How do you make friends with that? How do you coexist with that? How do you integrate that into your story? There's a lot of um, somatic and narrative therapy-based tools that we're developing um, for how to be able to write it out when it comes and also to not experience the extra level of suffering that comes from not just the suffering itself, but the shame you have and the disconnection you have as a result of that. And so when can we expect that these, this toolbox is going to be ready? Do we have mm-hmm. any idea? Um, we're not really sure how we're going to disseminate it yet. We've got it set up, but we don't know if we're going to have it be like in an app or in a book. So we'll have to stay tuned. Okay. Well, we're going to have you come back when it's all ready to go, but then you've also started, there's a website, a nonprofit. So -hmm. maybe Brian can talk a little bit about, about the nonprofit and how do people get in contact with you if they want to stay attuned to what you all are trying to do in the world? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for thanks for helping us get the word out. And we there's lots of other people in this space. They're doing great work. For example, we talked a bit before I mentioned the critical suicidology movement. There's some amazing people like uh, Ian Marsh and Michael Kral, K-R-A-L. And so there's a lot of people doing great things. There's new organizations that are popping up all the time that are really putting front and center the lived experience. Lived experience has not always gotten the kind of prominent place that it should have should have had. Well, Brian, can you say a little bit what is what does that mean to have yes, a lived? Yeah, I'll, I'll say that. 
And why is that so important when we're talking about prevention and really embracing people in the way that we've been talking about today? Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, And so remember before I talked about that sort of medical model, that suicide is, in fact, this was the some of the phrasing that people were using and have been for a long time. Suicide, this was what, how it used to be uh, considered. You know, suicide is due to severe mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. A, and that's the kind of language that we used for a long time. Um, uh, uh, solving suicide was something that only uh, people with white lab coats and white beards. White towers. And white towers, white ivory towers could handle. And so, but it has always been a personal family. uh, I mean, and all the people that we've lost, Marilyn Monroe, Anthony Bourdain. And I bring up Marilyn Monroe because it was her life and her tragic death that really galvanized the public and the research community in the early 60s and into the 70s, where people finally said, no, we need to to we need to look at it and not just pass it off to the doctors and the experts and the pros. And so I say all that to say that those of us that have lost people, we still tell their story. My friend is still is still part of the work. She's still helping, talking about the people we've lost. Um, and we were talking about the the suicide ideation toolbox and the sit approaches that are coming soon. And so that we can still that we can talk about metaphors. Like, Jamie, can, can you say the beach ball metaphor? Because I think this is one of the best metaphors. Okay, so just so you know, we have about just a couple minutes left. Okay, this okay. is worth it, Elaine. Okay, so this is going to be your final word, Jamie. Come on, this go is, ahead. And this is my the final word. Okay. So when you're having a thought that you don't want or feeling that you don't want and you are trying to um, avoid it, you're trying to push it underground, it's like you're holding a beach ball. And if you push a beach ball under the water what happens? It's a constant exertion of effort and pressure. And the moment you let go, there's a rebound effect and it splashes water all over your face. And so similarly, when you're trying to stop having an unpleasant or unwanted thought, there's a rebound effect. And so instead of trying to stop the thought or push the thought down, you can coexist with the thought and let the thought pass you by. Ah, nice. Isn't that great? That is great. Okay. So Brian, you get to say the website Say it so we know it and our and our and so our audience can go to it to right. stay tuned. Spotlightonsuicide.org. That's it. Spotlightonsuicide.org. Easy. Okay. Easy peasy lemon squeezy. And spotlightonsuicide.org. And uh and please get in touch. Whether you you want to say, hey, thank you so much for talking about lived experience. If you have some ideas for us, this is the great thing about the suicide uh prevention, suicide awareness, suicide support community is it's a family. So many of us are part of this family. Some of us didn't want to be part of this community, but we are. And it really is an incredibly loving, supportive group. And um, so if anybody wants to be connected to us, please reach out. We will love, love, love to hear from you. Well, and I just want to say thank you to both of you. I will have you on again. So stay tuned. And also to all of our listeners to remember what else is true. Um, that remember there may be that sister, there may be that person that you'll meet who says, I would have just called you on in, given you a big old hug. It just like, I, th- I feel like we've gotten a big old hug from Brian and Jamie today in just their kindness. And I'm so grateful for them, t- 
for coming and being present with their ideas. And I would just want to say, as we leave today, um, to I'm going to dedicate today's show to your two friends who've inspired you to hope that one person at least, or maybe more, and I know it's maybe more, can have a different pathway because you remember them in the way that you do. And for all of you who've lost someone dear to you, also remember what else is true and how you may remember who they were and all the good things about them and keep that close to your heart. At the same time, I know missing them as well and wishing that they were here. So until next week, this is Elaine Miller-Karis signing out for Resiliency Within and remember what else is true. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine Miller-Karis, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon. Resiliency Within with host Elaine Miller-Karis is brought to you by Trauma Resource Institute Incorporated. Visit TraumaResourceInstitute.com.